Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Series 3 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful, top-of-their-field specialists and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project and I'd love to continue to do more. So if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release. Go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on ACAST Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Relationships tell us so much about ourselves, and yet we can often think they only tell us about others. But they can also tell us about our childhood and family patterns, because we take all of that into our relationships. I know people who have said that couples counselling has taught them more about themselves in a shorter space of time than individual therapy has. In this episode, I talk about all of this and more to psychoanalytic psychotherapist Susanna Apsi. Susanna has over 30 years experience in helping couples and was CEO of the charity Tavistock Relationships for 10 years. She has also been chair of the British Psychoanalytic Council, of which she is a member. Her book, Tell Me the Truth About Love, 13 Tales from the Therapist's Couch, came out earlier this year. Susanna was the first person who made me realise that sometimes in relationship, there's one person who holds all the stress or has all the feelings. This is a really useful episode to help you learn more about yourself, your approach to love and relationships. I hope you enjoy it. Susanna, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi. You and I have spoken many times over the years and we've had some very interesting discussions and you've just written a rather fabulous book called Tell Me the Truth About Love. And one of the things that really struck me and one of the reasons I wanted to get you here um, to talk is that what struck me as I was reading it was I felt actually it was Tell Me the Truth About You because how much of we are in our relationships is about us and to a certain extent our childhood. Now, when I started doing my Guardian column many years ago, I used to get really annoyed at that sort of stereotype analyst therapist thing about tell me about your childhood but as life has gone on I've realized that actually it really does inform so much of who we are and the way we are especially in relationships I guess because we replicate early relationships yeah I don't think it's replicate I think we're shaped by early relationships and often we are very keen not to replicate early relationships so you know consciously we think oh well I don't want to be like my parents were in their relationship or I don't want to treat my daughter the way I was treated but nevertheless there are patterns of relationship perhaps we'd call them even templates or some people call them scripts that inform how we approach other people we learn those by observing and being in interaction 
in our childhoods with our parents, by observing our parents' relationship, with our friendships, and in adolescence, of course, at the beginning of how we have relationships, you know, our first loves. All of those, I think, are influences that carry us through to adulthood. Do you think people, because when I look back at my own romantic past, I definitely think with each relationship, I've got better at them, made better choices. Is that typical? (laughs) It is if you're in a maturational process. Like if you're somebody who learns from experience, then of course, we tend to get wiser as we get older about our relationships. But unfortunately, people's developmental process can get a bit stuck. And so some people repeat and repeat and repeat as though they're trying to work something out over and over and over again so that their first marriage ends and then they have another marriage and they find themselves in the same pattern or they keep choosing the same kind of partner and replicating something over and over again. So yes, we get better if we're developing, but if we're not, if we're a bit stuck, then we can repeat. Why might we be repeating things? What are we looking for to make things better? Well, I think it is a hopeful thing on the whole. Yes, I I have a sort of view that we're always trying to move towards the light, even if it doesn't feel or look like that on the surface. There is always a hope that you will make things better or this time around you will get loved in the way that you want to be loved. But, you know, conscious wishes and unconscious rivers running through us tend to shape things as much as our conscious wishes. So if we get stuck, it may be because we haven't understood something very important about ourselves and we're trying to fix something that perhaps actually isn't really fixable and we need to work through it, let it go and move on to a different kind of hope. Yeah, but what might not be fixable? Well, for instance, we all long, don't we, to be understood Mm-hmm. perfectly and we all long to be held in a way that is unending and safe and without any jeopardy in it we're not going to be dropped we're not going to be misunderstood and if we've had a good enough early experience with a parent who has held us and tried to make sense of our cries and our upsets, and has been prepared to listen, and be with us, and tend to us, and attend to us, then we can also cope with the fact that actually have to bear the fact that people misunderstand us, our mother misunderstand us, our fathers misunderstand us, our siblings certainly do, that things don't go as brilliantly and as perfectly as we might wish. And we bear that disappointment and we have to bear that disappointment through life in all our relationships. But if we've never had it, we might go on searching for that perfect understanding in a way that's just unrealistic, actually. We search for it because we haven't had it, but we also search for it because the other side of not having had it has been too much disappointment too early on. Mm -hmm. And so we're really avoiding that. And we do all sorts of strange things to avoid that experience of being disappointed or dropped or misunderstood or controlled or manipulated, all the sort of scary things that can happen in relationships. We've built a way of being or a defence, as I would call it, to avoid that happening again. We're almost looking for perfection where disappointment can't occur again. But in doing that, we never find it. Exactly. Because what we end up doing is raging against our partners that they aren't attuned to us in the way we want or aren't fulfilling the promise that the early weeks and months of the relationship seem to offer. So if you've had a more secure early relationship and you've been held psychologically, physically, are you more realistic in your expectations? I don't know, because I'm not sure that realism... When you fall in love is is the point, is it? I don't know. Anybody who falls in love 
really falls in love from a position of realism. (laughs) (laughs) It just doesn't work like that. (laughs) And I'm glad it doesn't work like that because that moment of, I don't know if you ever watch First Dates, but I watch it a lot. And there's always, particularly on the teenage version of that, they've been selected, haven't they, for certain reasons. They've been selected because they're both Harry Potter fans or whatever. And they sit down at that bar and they order their, you know, virgin cocktails and they start to talk to each other. And one says, what are you into? And the other one says, well, I'm quite a big Harry Potter fan. And the other one says, oh, my gosh, I'm really into Harry Potter. And there's this moment of, I've met somebody who's like Mm. me, and we're the same, and we're, oh, we're into the same things. I like blue. Do you? I like blue. That's my favourite colour. And that moment of meeting an other who seems to kind of just fit you like a glove and understand you is just a wonderful thing. But it is only a moment, isn't it? It It isn't reality. But we need it. Why would we go... And put our heart in somebody else's hands if we didn't have that moment of kind of perfect excitement and something charged and wonderful like that. But we have to realise, I guess, at some point that it can't be perfect because it has to be realistic, no? I mean, isn't that what bearing the sort of everyday bumps of a real relationship are about compared to those who can't and it's just jettison it you know I'm always reminded of that scene in Friends there's that scene where Chandler and Monica have their first row and he just goes well that's it it's over and and yeah. she's like no sweetie this is what happens I mean is that a sort of a bit yeah, what we're talking is, about absolutely that's a really good example because in that actually Monica is a bit more hopeful I mean she's had her kind of parents hasn't she who've kind of rubbed along and and she sort of has a belief that things go on whereas Chandler whose parents have separated haven't they and there's a sort of implication it's funny and stuff of course but there's something traumatic he thinks oh that's it it's over so he's lucky because he's got Monica who kind of keeps it going but of course um, yeah that's what happens people can feel it's the end of the world at that moment you're disappointed And when you said, but we've all got to face it, even me, who knows that's true, has a little voice that says, why? Because that's what people come to couple therapy about. They go, but why? Why isn't my partner understanding me? They're raging against that disappointment. And why isn't their partner understanding them? Is there a common theme? Well, because their partner's, you know, a human is the common theme. (laughs) <laughs> limited like us all us humans that's the common theme and the partner is also full of disappointments and um, longings and wishes and it's just a reality some of us bear it and kind of go through it and come out the other side and value what we've got and some people really really struggle with it so it is a reality it is a reality. But obviously, yeah. the beginning has to be, well, it doesn't have to be, but is usually a little more rooted in something magical and hopeful. Yeah. So the thing I was really struck about with your book is that how much of it was about people bringing themselves, I mean, obviously themselves into the relationship, but maybe things they'd never spoken about. And I mean, I could be wrong, and maybe you disagree with me here, it's your book, but what I took away from it was how much it was about the way they'd been brought up and what they brought to a relationship. There was a moment of clarity for me when we learnt more mm. about the couples. Did I read that mm. right in your book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is the core of the work, but there's a People come with, sometimes with a lot of what I would call sort of cognitive understanding, like they know something, they know they know that their parents' relationship was really difficult and they recognise there's impacts on them and often they've constructed their relationship to be very different from their parents' relationship. But what they don't see is that the construction of that relationship has meant 
that actually they get back to where they thought they were not going to go. It's like you saying, well, that's a path I'm not going to go down. I'm definitely choosing that path. But they go along that path and then they find themselves back where they thought that they'd not started because they've constructed a defence, if you like, against something, which has means that they haven't faced certain things. So they know something. But there's a big difference between knowing something in one's head and actually feeling it. And the other thing is, is that when we're in relationships, we tend to be very focused on what the other person's doing and what they're like. Friends go to other friends and say, you know, he does this, he's like this. Why is he so much, you know, so selfish? Why is he so thoughtless? Why is he always, you know, absent? We tend not very much to look at ourselves and think about where we are in it and how we may have constructed something with our partner. What couple therapy helps people do, I hope, is kind of get to the point where instead of you focusing just on what the other person's doing or exclusively focusing on what you're feeling or what you might be doing, you begin to look at what you have done and created with your partner, what you have co-constructed, if you like. So your relationship is something that you both can hover above and look down on and be interested in what you're creating together and what you have created together. So it's a, it's, it's a separate thing. It's a third thing, your relationship. And you can get a view on it, a bird's eye view on it. And I agree. I think a lot of people don't look at their place and thing. I mean, one of the things I really try and do is to help people look at their place because I think that gives you control. And who doesn't want control? I mean, you know. Absolutely. I suppose, is it quite hard for people to do that? It takes time because the preoccupation is with what the other person's doing to you. And it takes time, you know, and then there's the whole issue of, So often couples come blaming each other and, you know, you have to work through that kind of world of blame to a different kind of state, which is more about curiosity. And that takes some time. Yes, especially if they've been arguing for a really long time and they've got their script and and then they they kind of stop listening to each other because they're so intent and they keep thinking they keep repeating they're going to get heard. And they don't. Yeah. I mean, couples therapy is a, yeah. is a really amazing thing because sometimes it's a bit, well, it's like having a, a sort of mediator, a referee, a parent, I mean, call it what you will, but someone who's actually says, well, you know, like, let's look at this in a different way. And it's kind of there for both of you. Whereas sometimes yeah. in a couple, I think when they argue, it's quite isolating. Then they may go to their friends who back up what they think because they're just moaning about X, Y, Z, and it just sort of never ends. But you said earlier something about sometimes people trying to avoid something. I can't remember your exact wording, but they must go down the road they didn't mean to drive down. Yeah. Why does that happen? I suppose because avoiding things never really works that well. I mean, that isn't to say that sometimes you don't avoid a confrontation or decide to leave something. But avoiding something in a kind of very deep way means avoiding truth about yourself. There is no absolute truth, but the quest for truth, Mm -hmm. the quest to understand. Say you come from a family where there was lots and lots of fighting and arguments and it was scary and and difficult for you as as a small child. You might decide consciously that in your relationship, you're not going to ever be that kind of arguing couple and you're going to always be reasonable and loving and collaborative. And so you have a relationship and you find somebody else who, for whatever reason, kind of wants to go down that road too. And the two of you create a relationship which is very avoidant of any conflict. Mm. And that means avoiding knowing things that you need to know. That means avoiding knowing about your own distress. It means avoiding knowing things about your own frustration. It means bearing maybe things that aren't right, really, sometimes. It means turning a blind eye to things. And both parties can do that until one day 
one person is so full of grievance and grudge about all the things they feel they've been swallowing to keep this wonderful accord going, something happens. They have an affair, they cheat in some way, they explode, and then you're back to something collapsing into something very angry and hateful. Because all those feelings that have been avoided in the service of not being like our parents, for instance, suddenly explode in the relationship. So relationships can go from blissful and very, what I would call, enmeshed and avoidant to something very destructive quite quickly. Taking that example, someone who's grown up in a family where people shout a lot and so they go into not arguing, what might have been a better way to approach a relationship that doesn't, I'm going to use the word replicate again, their Mm. childhood home, but isn't the other extreme Mm. of sort of seemingly blissful no arguing, but actually seething resentment setting in? So often it, it really is what I call developing a emotional processing machine between the couple. So I sometimes have this image when I'm with couples that they need a sort of like some kind of machine between them in which difficult feelings go in and they're worked at and there's a, you know, they're squeezed and looked at and understood and, and they come out the other side sort of a bit more manageable. So I think that talking, and you know, this is nothing new, this is certainly not rocket science, being able to talk about difficult things is really, really important. Being able to bear sometimes not liking each other, being able to repair a relationship that has gone through a difficult patch. Those are all the essential skills of having a good relationship. And, you know, they take time and if you haven't had an example of them they are demanding because it's scary to enter into the world of opening up and saying things that are difficult or allowing for angry feelings to emerge and believing that they will be recovered from like monica you know monica uh, says to chandler no it'll be okay we'll work it out we'll talk And the best relationships are ones where there is that kind of capacity. Mm. Because that is sort of very much normal life as well about, you know, it can't always be wonderful and perfect, much as we'd like it to be. And it's really about getting over those obstacles and difficulties. But I guess if you've not been taught them or you think it's failure, you might avoid them. Don't we do that? I mean, do you think we're comfortable generally with things going wrong between ourselves and colleagues and friends and lovers and siblings and how confident are we that they can be repaired I mean there's such a sense of jeopardy I think around for all of us about getting it wrong saying the wrong thing will we be you know punished for yeah, it's it's quite difficult just to be ordinarily human. I agree. I mean, I think it's, you know, Chris Mills taught me in The Art of Listening in series one that it's because yeah. I said to him, sometimes you might not want to talk to people about something if you think they're fragile. And he said, I think maybe it's not that they're fragile, but the relationship is. And that really, really made sense to me because I looked at people yeah. I know and I'm not at all afraid of, I don't like the word confrontation because it sounds so confrontational. But I'm not afraid of it, for want of a better word. But if the other person can't handle it, then I immediately retreat. Mm. But if I feel someone is can, I, mm. I think it can be really, really um, cleansing and makes for better connections with people. You have to both be able to be robust to handle it. And obviously it doesn't have to be about aggression. That's the other thing. It can just be saying, you know, I feel mm. like this. or. But otherwise, if you don't, I just think... I think in a relationship, if you don't, then one part of the couple usually ends up doing the heavy lifting for both of you. That's definitely true. You can get sort of lumbered. One person can get lumbered. Usually, they're the, the heavy lifting is in the form of having all the feelings. Mm. 
you know, often you see couples where one person is quite silent and quiet and and the other person is like rah, 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 really upset and and it can feel like they're the troublemaker. But often, in a way, they're doing the heavy lifting, doing the work, the emotional work on their own. And you know, part of the therapy is about trying to make sure the other person engages a bit more, takes some of the burden of doing that processing of feelings. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A few years ago, we worked on a problem where the woman, it was a heterosexual relationship, and the woman was the one that sort of had the emotional burden, and you said, oh, yeah, she's carrying all the stress. And yeah. I never thought about it like that. But I know in my own dealings with people in general, people I come into contact with, family, or if there's one person that's really relaxed, I become more stressed because I feel I've got to yeah. hold it. But if I'm with someone that's more stressed than me... I become more relaxed. This is why I like to travel mm. on my own because I either mm. end up so relaxed that I might miss the flight mm. or I end up the person carrying everybody's passports and reminding everybody. Mm. But it's kind of interesting yeah. looking at that in the relationship because sometimes yeah. people just think it's normal, but you have to. I mean, I've had to learn mm. to step back sometimes and think, well, what is my place in this? Why am I doing all this? Yeah. What can I let go mm. of? Because I think that when we carry on behavior that's detrimental to us, there's usually a tether there's something making us do it. Yeah, there's usually a feeling of some kind of you're having to do something because there's a potential calamity around. You're trying to avoid something. So you're doing all this emotional work, taking responsibility or, or whatever. And I think questioning him. I mean, what you were saying just then about take a step back and I, and I wonder to myself. I mean, that is, that is the gold dust of of being able to make sense of our relationships, being able to take a step back and sort of get this slightly bird's eye view of, hang on a minute, what's going on around here? Why is he saying that right now and what's it doing to me? You know, so often I'm helping people, when I'm working with individuals, I'm helping them notice what might be stirring them up and what their partner might be doing to them and what they're doing to their partner. I'm just helping them kind of just get a little bit of a bird's eye view above the situation, mm. just not be completely in the melee 
all the time. Once you've got that, it really, really is so helpful. We're not then so subject to all our feelings being pushed about by them so much. Yeah, that's a really good visual image because otherwise when you're in it, you can't really see the full picture, can you? Because you're very much looking at it from your own point of view. But it's, it's quite Absolutely. hard and it needs practice. I mean, for anyone listening to this, the whole name of the podcast is what relationships tell us about ourselves. Yeah. I mean, what other things can they think about? What are the kind of questions you ask when couples come in? I mean, what sort of couple of first questions people might ask themselves if they are having issues in a relationship? Well, I suppose, you know, questions to yourself about, well, how am I in relationships generally are useful. I tend to think there are aspects of the way we are in couple relationships that can also be repeated in our friendships, in our relationships with siblings, Mm, work colleagues. You know, it's just in the couple relationship because they are usually our primary attachment figure. You know, the person we turn to for sort of emotional comfort and safety it has an extra sort of engine under it that magnifies all our feelings but I suppose you can ask yourself questions like well am I generally a trusting an open person or am I my kind of more cautious maybe even a little sort of suspicious do I find myself often anxious in relationships with others am I somebody always kind of wants to please people um am i am i actually the opposite am i very oppositional in groups or in relationships if my boss asks me for something even though i might sort of not say why are you asking me to do that is that is that what pops into my head you know it it is all about this thing isn't it about developing a sort of self-observing part a kind of bit of yourself that can observe yourself Um, and that is how we learn what we are like in relationships what we believe about relationships you know what our essential beliefs are about relationships are they ones you know we can generally trust are they ones where we'd be understood are they ones where we think we're going to get messed about you know, all of these things are very important things for us to learn about ourselves. But what do we do when, if we ask ourselves those things? What do we do with those answers? So let's take an example about, you know, do I trust easily? No. Then what might I ask myself? Knowledge is the beginning of being able to take control. Because if you don't know that, then it's this thing, isn't it? You're just simply in it. You have no observing self, no capacity to kind of make choices, you are it. So, of course, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm talking as though this is, you know, well, just off you go, develop an observing self and then you'll be fine. I mean, (laughs) yeah, that would certainly cut down the therapy time. (laughs) I'm still working on it. It's a lifelong task. It isn't something you get and then you've got it forever life circumstances stresses and strains losses disrupt that capacity completely but i do, i do think that you know people are very can be very thoughtful and it is developing that thoughtful self being able to talk to other people about yourself being able to observe other people and how they are all of that is the process of growing up and developing and Once it gets going, and sometimes people need some therapy to get it going, it is a capacity that can flow and grow and develop. The reason I was asking you that about looking at why, you know, asking yourself those questions, is it easy for me to trust, do I get anxious, etc, etc, is really going back to our early experiences and sometimes I think it's important see if you agree that you kind of work out what those feelings are and where they really belong I'm just going to read a passage from your book which really just set my neural pathways alight it's where you said 
The Italian neuroscientist Vittorio Galese has discovered that when we empathise with someone, identical neural systems in both brains fire up. It's as though our brain is working to replicate the feelings of another person. In these experiences of empathetic identification, we connect to an emotion that we may have had in the past, but which is not our own in the present. For a moment, we allow ourselves to feel the other's despair, fear, rage or joy. But if we lose ourselves in someone else's feelings or find those feelings too overwhelming, we can't help them. We need to fall into the feelings, connect and then separate our emotions from theirs, all in the twinkling of an eye. If we fail to empathise like this with our children or our partners, they feel misunderstood. And whilst that seems a little thing, being misunderstood by those we love is a painful, alienating experience. I've got to say, I thought that was really profound. And if it wasn't so long, I would cross-stitch it onto a cushion. But <laughs> firstly, the beginning bit where you talked about the neural pathways fire up because we're trying to sort of empathise. It mm. reminded me a bit of the physical mirroring we do with people when we're trying to, mm. you know, that people talk about. But mm. can we talk about that paragraph? Because... It seemed to say to me that sometimes the feelings we're reacting to have a history in us. Absolutely. Well, they all do, don't they? And it's this is what I mean about the description you've just read is the emotional processing machine I was talking about. Mm. Because when your partner goes, it's broken, and they're feeling upset and overwhelmed and they're worrying about the money that it's going to cost to men. At that moment, in order to empathise with them and to process the high emotion that's around it, we do have to kind of go, oh, it's broken. Oh, crikey, it, it, it is. And it is going to cost £200. But then we've got to, hopefully, we can go, well, hang on a minute. Is it broken or is it, should I just check to see if it's blocked? <laughs> Let's imagine it's a washing machine. Yeah. And so we can contain the experience. We recognise it. We've seen it in our partner. They're worried. We got worried for a moment, so we paid attention. Then we go, oh, actually, maybe it'll be okay and I need to just check. You know, you, the temperature goes down. And then perhaps there are two people who are on their hands and knees, unscrewing something and working together as a couple to sort something that had been upsetting and difficult out. But you go, ah, it's broken. Oh, my God, it's broken. And you're equally anxious and overwhelmed. Then you've got two people who actually are in a process of not being able to cope. And things start to go wrong. All sorts of consequences flow from the failure to do that thing, which is to step back and to process the feeling and then to move back towards your partner in a different way. If, to take your washing machine example, someone was very worried about losing their job or grew up in a yeah. house that was very poor, or if it yeah. tapped into something much more, then their reaction would not be, oh dear, it's broken, that's a pain. It might be much bigger than that. Absolutely. So if two people are together... And they both have had insecure childhoods. And one person runs in and says, I think I'm going to get the sack because of X, Y and Z. Of course, it stirs a lot of unbearable anxiety in the other person. Then they have to find defences to cope with mm. that, which might be not talking about things. You know, or blaming the other. Or blaming, yep. Or blaming somebody else. They find all sorts of defences, but the problem is the feelings and the anxieties haven't been contained and worked through. And while you're defending, you're never going to be able to do that, are you? Oh, exactly. If you're defending yourself against an accusation because somebody's trying to make you responsible for the catastrophe that's happened, then, yeah, you're lost. That's So many couples do that. But also, if you're defending yourself against pain or hurt, you're not going to go there. You're just going to block it out. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right, Annalise. Because it, it is it is painful. I mean, I do a process yeah. called corkscrewing, which is if I think that my reaction to something is not rational or OTT, 
I corkscrew down to what I think it might be. And I know I've hit it because I get upset, I get defensive, or I start to cry, depending on what it is. It used to take me ages, but now it's really, really quick. And then I can kind of work on it. It's almost like working out the fault in, you know, the washing machine, to go back to your example. Yeah. Sometimes I also quit, like, you know, what, the, what are the subtitles? You know, what are the subtitles of this couple arguing? You know, because it's often not really about that, is it? Absolutely. And you must see no. this a lot. Absolutely. I mean, this is such a simplistic, but I think hard to answer question. Is there a common theme in the couples that come to see you? I can't say. I suppose I can say that every couple who comes has a problem with communication. But that doesn't mean to say they're not talking. Mm. Sometimes they're talking a lot. But the communication is at the level of feeling states. They can't really communicate. But, you know, couples come with different problems. Couples come because they can't talk about things. Other couples come because they they fight. And couples come because they... One person's had an affair. There's a whole range of reasons. But the real issues at the heart of it is, for me, it's the problem with the processing of feeling states between the couple. What have you learned about relationships in all these years of listening to other people's? Oh, gosh, that's... Annalisa, what I hope it's in the book what I've learnt, um, and you continue to learn, and that's why I continue to like my job because every day you you learn something either for the first time or you remember something that you've forgotten. You know, human beings are endlessly fascinating. What I do think is for all of us, nearly. Even though sort of some of us may not be very interested in relationships and may live our lives pretty disconnected from other people. And that's fine. People have happy lives like that. But for all of us, there is a really essential drive to be known and to know other people. It is at the heart of everything for me, relationships. Mm. So what would you say to your 18-year-old self or however old you were when you embarked on having relationships? I first would say calm down. Take a breath. Because what you're describing in yourself, being able to kind of notice your feeling states and, what did you call it, corkscrew down. It's a wonderful image. was something I couldn't do. And it's taken me decades and decades and decades to develop that. And and that's not because I didn't come from a very loving family. I did. But not a family terrifically interested in relationships, more interested in ideas. So, you know, it's taken me a long time to manage my own feelings, to learn to be curious. Yeah, so that's what I'd say. Mm. Did you want to talk about patterns in relationships, Susanna? Well, avoidant patterns. You know, you see a lot of people who come to therapy because they've really been very avoidant of discussing and talking about things that need to be discussed and then the problem pops up somewhere else there's a issue that comes like an affair happens so that's a pattern I see a great deal couples often really struggle at the point of having children so you know this joyful thing that people move towards and look forward to can be like setting off a little bomb in a relationship. So I see a lot of couples who come because either they've had children recently and things have gone sort of pear-shaped, or they've been in a quite a bad state for quite a long time. But if you look at what's gone wrong, it originates. It's happened at the point of having children. Often the difficulty around managing the threesome, you know, two's company, Mm. three's a crowd. It's quite a complicated thing for all of us, isn't it? Yeah, and I think also if you've had any kind of difficulty in early life, having children can actually bring that up for some people. Yeah, and in fact I see a lot of couples in my practice who going through IVF or have gone through IVF and the relationship has sort of suffered 
because, you know, one person's wanted to do it more than another person or have put off having children and then have found they haven't been able to and have to go through the whole process of working out what they're going to do next. You know, those are very common reasons why people come. And just occasionally, I see couples who are very early in their relationship. And because we're in a world now that is a bit more interested in psychological matters and mental health, come because they've got an idea that actually they need help in relationships. And that's really enjoyable and really good to work with those couples because that's right at the beginning and you feel you know there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of love and it hasn't been corroded by years of misunderstanding and arguments and disconnection so they don't have problems but they're preempting them well they've run into something right you know either it's around commitment or uncertainty about giving up other things in favor of the relationship you know, the anxiety about becoming more dependent on each other. And they've sort of gone, oh, you know, I think we should go and get some help together. And even though they may only be sort of a year into their relationship, there's a sort of wish to, often driven by what's happened in their own childhood. You know, they both come from families where there's been a divorce and they want to make something lasting. Yeah, I think if there's one thing I really wish I'd known is that how much your early experiences can impact on your relationships when you grow up. I, I really, I learned that late. It's been very interesting, but I could have done with learning it before. What did you hope to achieve by writing your book? I suppose, you know, I've been at this a long, long time, seeing couples since 1986. And I think I thought, well... Maybe I've got something to say and which will be useful to people. Uh, I hope people feel it's a generous sharing of my knowledge and experience. And I hope people find it a good read, apart from anything mm, else. It is. It taught, it, like I said, it taught me a lot about myself. It made me think about things. Do you think that people's problems have changed since 1986? I think that I, I'm seeing something changing in the equity between partners. I mean, women still come in in some ways, are more inclined to disempower themselves, but it's much less often. So there was a sort of feeling that one would see a lot of couples where women were very, very angry and men were rather compliant and quiet. That used to be a real pattern. And although, you know, it was a bit... (laughs) When I when I first became a couple therapist, they asked me when I went for the interview, what do you think I'll find difficult? And having come from a sort of being a, a feminist and being involved in the women's liberation movement, as it was called then, I said, well, I think I'll be a bit worried that I'll always be on the women's side. And in fact, it was the opposite because women used to come in shouting with rather sort of depressed, quiet men. And I gradually learned to understand that that shouting was in part because women were carrying all the feelings because men weren't allowed feelings, you know, in the way that they'd been brought up. So they would do all the feeling states. But also there was a quality of disempowerment in that sort of noisiness feeling that they had to make a lot of noise because essentially they felt disempowered. I don't see as much of that now. There's more of a sense of equity between men and women. Men are so much more involved in the process of family making than they used to be. Not all men, but much more than they used to be. Women are much more financially empowered than they used to be. But The kind of negative about that is I think that the notion of making a relationship where people depend on each other is a bit more, people are a bit more suspicious about it. So in money, for instance, there used to be a lot of sharing of money and women wanted that because they would often not work or not work as much after they had children. So they'd 
demand that there was a sharing of money. Whereas now, very, very rarely do couples share money. Mostly they have separate bank accounts. Sometimes they have a joint one, but often they don't even have that. And they are very, very independent financially. And I think construct their relationship as more independent of each other generally. But, you know, that's just my observation. And of course, my colleagues might see something different. Thank you so much to Susanna for distilling her three decades of insights into that conversation. A reminder that her book is called Tell Me the Truth About Love, 13 Tales from the Therapist's Couch and is widely available. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That episode concludes Series 3. Series 4 will be out in the autumn. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa or you can email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.